Maybe don't know. Maybe don't. This time, 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 What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to episode 181 of the Power Company podcast brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. The snows have descended upon us here in Lander, Wyoming, which has put at least a temporary end to my outdoor bouldering season. However, has massively helped the wildfire situation here in the Mountain West, which is a great thing. And I'm pretty excited to get back into the machine shop. Um... It's been a long bouldering season, and I'm really proud of how it went down. Um, 2020, I've done as many double-digit boulders as I've done in all the prior years combined. So I'm feeling really good about my climbing, about how my training has gone. I've simplified it drastically, um, and it's just gotten better and better. And getting back into the machine shop, my first two sessions, I was able to first try, repeat old projects, which tells me I'm at a good place. So I'm excited for this coming training season and for the the days I can get out in the winter. I've got big projects, so I'm excited to spend some time in the gym getting stronger and some time outside working out the moves to set myself up for a really solid spring. One big announcement before we jump into this episode, just recently Lana and I hosted a trivia night with Rocktoberfest, the annual Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition Festival, and it was so much damn fun that we decided to continue that. Um, We're hoping to do it monthly. It is going to cost five dollars per person to join there will be prizes which will be announced soon and all of the profits will go directly to a different organization each month that we choose that's helping build the climbing community in a in a smart diverse way and the first month we've chosen We Climb, which is a group newly started up in Chattanooga that's looking to get um, underprivileged youth outside and into climbing and just to mentor them in a really responsible way, which I think is a really brilliant approach to, to growing this community the way that so many of us want to see it grown. And I had an amazing conversation with Kendall, who started We Climb just yesterday. So we're really excited to be able to support his organization. It's $5 to join the trivia game. You can give more if you like. Like I said, all of that money is going to go straight to We Climb to help them out with their mission. The trivia game will be on November 11th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. And we will all be on a Zoom call together. You'll be playing the game on your mobile phone, all climbing-based. Of course, with the Power Company podcast, lean toward the final round so that any of you podcast fans 
can take the lead right there at the last minute, win the prizes. All right, there is a sign-up link for that trivia right there in your show notes in your pocket supercomputer. Now, today's guest is Brandon Belcher. Brandon is a climber, mostly boulderer, based out of Atlanta, Georgia, who I first met in El Paso over tacos when I was about to interview Brittany Levitt for the podcast. And Brandon stopped by here in Lander for a session in the machine shop and to sit down and have a conversation. I'm actually surprised I was able to pull him away from playing with my cat long enough to have a conversation, but I'm glad I did. Um, This is a great example of getting to know someone and forming a, a relationship through a deep conversation and really, really learning about that person and their ideas and their views. And I think that you will get to know Brandon and enjoy this time with him the same as I did. So let's get into it. As a black man in this country, you have to have your guard up all the time. There's no way that a community this insular, this white, didn't have these issues. There's just no way. When I was younger, I was like a really, I was a really scrawny kid, like really scrawny, but I used to ride my bike all the time. That was pretty much my only like exercise I got. Very scrawny kid. And my dad, you know, he was so obsessed with me, like being like this, like the tough kid playing football, mm. playing basketball, all of like these like team sports. And I just never wanted to do it. I was like kind of wimpy. I was like kind of wimpy. I wasn't very competitive. I wasn't very aggressive. And like my dad was kind of like this stereotypical and like rest in peace dad but kind of like stereotypical like hard man yeah Yeah. um toughen up you know men don't cry or boys don't cry Mm -hmm. you know um we never really like hugged much we never really said like i love you much like none of that that was too tender um and it yeah it was it yeah i just was not a very competitive kid i have always been more into like individual sports, like where I, you know, I'm going after like PRs or like, I'm more or less like competing against myself. Um, so I ran like track and field. That was like my first like intro into sports. Uh, when was that? Like middle school and a little bit of high school. And I would have ran more in high school, but A, really figured out that I wasn't all that fast after a while. Like I'm super flat foot and just was not the fastest ever. Um, and B I hated my track coaches. They're all like football coaches who basically use track and field to keep their football athletes conditioned during the spring. Did they have the same sort of attitude that your dad did? Oh yeah. Yeah. Always in your face. I remember, um, especially when they were talking to, to the women athletes, they used to call them bitches. They used to really just dig into them like all the time. But those, those girls could run fast though. I mean, our, our, our girls track team at my high school in Roswell High during that time, they were killing it. Um, but yeah, they were, they had kind of had that same attitude and it just really kind of killed it for me. Um, also my pole vault coach. You were a pole vaulter. Yeah. I was yeah. a pole vaulter. Oh really? Yeah. Nice. I was okay. Like my, Same. I was okay. yeah. <laughs> my freshman year was mostly like uh, the pole vault coach teaching me technique. 
And then like sophomore, junior, senior year, you were mostly doing a lot of competitions and really kind of going hardcore at it. And I really wanted to pursue pole vaulting like primarily, but the sprint coaches, sprint slash football coaches, mm. like they want, you can't just do pole vault. You can't just do high jump. You can't just do long jump. You got to sprint. Um, especially cause I was pretty good at the four by one. Like I was the second. No, I was usually, wait, I was usually the third leg in the four by one, which is the curve. For whatever reason, running straights, I was super slow, but the curves, I was pretty good. Wow. So they used to make me run the four by the four by ones and the four by fours at least. Um, but I just wanted the pole vault. Well, pole vault coach ended up leaving. And I, I think we just got rid of the pole vault program in general. And I was like, mm. fuck this. Um, so that's when I got into fencing. Um, How does one go from track to fencing? <laughs> so my, you said it all casual. Like, <laughs> so I just moved to I fencing. Just moved to fencing. <laughs> no big deal. So um, I believe the year that I was running track and field, my school had started a fencing club because my government my government teacher was good friends with this woman named Kathy and I can't remember her last name but her, her name was Kathy and she was the she was the founder of the Dunwoody Fencing Club and so she would come in like once a week and bring in all this extra gear and stuff like that and anyone who was mm -hmm. interested and want to learn how to fence you know you put on the mask and the jacket and stuff and you learn like general technique well after that year, she was able, well, it was really Kathy and a couple of the other like fencing clubs around the metro Atlanta area. They were able, they were able to really start coaching up kids in various high schools on like how to fence. Yeah. Um, so it was the, was it the Georgia high school, Georgia high school fencing association, the GHSFA, I think it was. Um, and so I think it started out like five schools and it, it, now I think it's like 15 schools and in, in like the metro Atlanta area that all like fence competitively with one another. And so by the time, by the time I was like done with like track and field, the five schools were already competing like pretty competitively. And I had friends in my high school who were fencing. And so there's one, there's this one dude, this, this jock named Jameson Kernick. He was one of my good friends. Um, he was fencing and he was kind of like the hot shot of the of the fencing league of the high school fencing league he was a former football player super athletic always good at like everything that he did he was like you know blonde hair blue eyed really handsome looking tall dude like good at everything um total asshole love the kid total asshole though <laughs> um, and um i remember I remember, and I can't remember when we had this bet, but I was like, if I join the fencing league, I will beat you one day. Mm. I will actually beat you one day. And so I joined and I, I remember like really like liking it, but nothing, it didn't really click until I did, went to my first tournament and I almost made it to the final. So the way that it was set up, you would have uh, like a pool around. And so everyone was kind of randomly placed in like various pools and it's like the first of five touches. And so based on how you did during the pool round, you would get ranked into the elimination round. So, you know, if you won like, if you won all of your, all of your pool like matches and you had like a good like point differential. So like you got, you touched more than you got touched. then typically you were ranked higher and you would usually get a buy in the elimination round, et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, this is like, 
there would be anywhere from like 50 to close to 80 like men boys yeah um, sounds serious it was pretty serious it was huge i mean i was there all day from like 7 a.m until like 5 p.m on a saturday like fencing um you know my first tournament i got like 16th i got knocked out in the round of 16 against this kid named Kyle rolla never forget him because he had these like the the girl fencers would cheer every single time he got a point and really pissed me off and then i lost against this kid and that's that's when it that's when it snapped and that's when i got hooked and i was like i need to like because i knew i could have beaten him but it was the mental it was the mental aspect and those girls teasing me that really kind of like screwed me up yeah that's when i got hooked and that's when i started like really kind of taking it seriously yeah um I love that attitude. Yeah, yeah. It, it was a weird thing. And that, like I said, I wasn't that competitive, but that really bothered me. Um, oh, I think you were competitive. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what competitive yeah. is. <laughs> um, so, where are we going with this? Oh, yeah. yeah. Not only, well, I would, I would beat him in like uh, practice and stuff like that because typically practice is like, where you're trying different techniques yeah. and you're trying different things and you know it doesn't really matter if you win or lose it's not that competitive but yeah. <clears throat> i rarely faced him in an actual tournament it was pretty rare when we were in the same like pool like in the same kind of like pool bracket where people were getting ranked yeah. and it was it was even more rare that we ran into each other in the elimination round but yeah. i think we did like a couple of times and i lost against him um my first no it was my first year my second year on the team I remember making it to the finals. So the finals were basically the top eight. So it was like the round of 64, 32, 16. And then top eight, because there are so many people, typically top eight would usually get a medal, right? But like no one cares unless you get top three, let's be real. So I made it to the final four and I had to fence Jameson to get to the finals. And uh, in the elimination round, it's first to 15. And we got to a 14-14. And I forget the I forget the French term when you get 14-14, but it's like a thing like you're supposed to like salute your opponent and things like that and like get ready. And uh he tried his he had a he had a signature move. I think he called the flying dragon, which was like this really <laughs> douchey and like I said, like I said, he's really athletic. Come on, Jameson. Yeah. Oh, I hope he hears this episode later on. Flying so, dragon. So he um he's really athletic and so he was very fast, really, and and but he wasn't he wasn't the most technically proficient fencer, but he was very athletic and very fast, and that was his advantage. And and admittedly it was mine as well, but I had a bit more of what was called point control, um, where, you know, I if I wanted to aim somewhere and hit it, I could do it. Yeah. Um, and so he used to have this thing, the flying dragon, and he kind of would do like this like dip and like a jump as he lunged at you. And I had seen this move a million times before, and I, I tagged him. And I stole his silver medal, basically. So I fenced, I, I, I eliminated him out of the round of four. He had the fence for the third, for third place, which I think he won. Uh -huh. um, oddly enough, he wasn't mad. Normally, he got really pissed about stuff like that, but he wasn't mad. He actually shook my hand. He was like, he actually coached me pretty well in the final against this one kid named Harry Sullivan, who was like, it was like uh, this kid named like Ashkabuzi. Uh, Houston Fullerton and Harry Sullivan those were like wow. they're like the big dicks like they were like the best fencers in Georgia at like 16 17 years old wow. um, 
And so I had to fence Harry Silva in the, in the finals and just got obliterated. I think I lost 15-11, which is better than I thought um, I would have performed. But um, Did fencers, like, in high school, did they hang out after fencing? Like, did you go out and hang out with other fencers? Was it a social thing? Yeah. We used to... So it the high school, so serious and so proper that I'm just curious if that can even happen. In the South, it, it in the South it's like more recreational. Like hmm. in in the North, it's it's very like proper and prim, and like you actually go to like a facility that's like the club's facility, and like they have like their oh, own yeah. strips, and oh, probably yeah. they have their own bar, oh, and they have their own right. spa and showers and shit. In the oh, South, wow. like in the South, like you know, you make a strip out of some tape. And uh, you're playing in like a local or no, you're not playing, but you're practicing at like a local church or like right. we have like a couple of facilities that were like strictly for the teams. But you're mostly playing in like or uh, practicing in like a church or just like some building that someone's like willing to loan you out for like a certain period. Mm -hmm. um, so in the South, like it, it wasn't all that prim and proper or like, you know, gotcha. bougie or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, we hung out a good bit. Yeah. Hmm. Um, is there a way to continue fencing after high school if you're not like, if you don't want to continue into college and you're not getting a scholarship and you're not going to be an Olympic fencer, is there like a fencing league mm -hmm. for oh, adults? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, interesting. So you would, oh nice. She, I want to pet that cat. Yeah, she had a grasshopper. <laughs> you can pet so, of course, like NCAA schools, especially like Ivy League schools, they have like their own like fencing sort of like divisions and things like that. But the like the American fencing scene is very serious. Hmm. Um, so you would have like various events. Well, let me break it down like this. There are certain rankings that fencers like make. So it's ranked from A through E and then you're unranked if you're below E. Um, depending on a the number of fencers and b the fencers who are in a tournament like or i guess the ranking of the fencers in a certain tournament it determines like it can determine like how you could be placed into a certain rank or a certain yeah like a certain rank depending on where you finish so like say for instance if there's like a really big really big tournament going on of like 64 fencers and there's like a buttload of like a fencers who are fencing there if you were to finish in the top eight, there's a good chance that you would be like bumped up to like B level fencer or something mm. like that. Or if you were to win it, for instance, you would be bumped up to A level fencer. Um, I think like it's amazing to me that there are enough fencers to have A through E. Dude, because should, I would think there'd be like two per category. Oh no, no, no. A through E. You should see nationals, dude. It's <laughs> insane. I mean, I went to nationals for a team event my senior, yeah, my senior year in high school. And I mean, we filled out, it's like the, it's like a, like a, like the Georgia World Congress Center size, like building just full of like all these strips. Wow. Um, I had no idea this world existed. Oh yeah. It's huge. It's huge. Why didn't um, you continue? Oh man, it's expensive. <laughs> it's expensive. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, once mom kind of stopped paying for some things, it, it got a bit more difficult, but also, the team at Emory, a lot of them were foil fencers, and I, I really just didn't like foil fencing at all. Right. Um, so, what did you move into to like satisfy this? 
this competitive, uh, non-competitive <laughs> spirit that you have. <laughs> Drinking and smoking and playing music. <laughs> um, like many of us. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I was playing like a decent amount of music and stuff like that. But in my junior year in college, I met like a, I met a friend of a friend who was really into like Muay Thai. Hmm. And so we used to do a ton of like calisthenics training. Yeah. And um, mostly like a ton of like body, like, <clears throat> like body weight and calisthenics training. And then like there would be some sparring like incorporated in yep. there as well. And so we, I really got into that. Um, especially cause like uh, the friend of a friend of a friend, this dude named Talib, he was a former like linebacker for the Georgia Tech football team. And this oh. dude was a freak of nature. I mean, like 250, all muscle, doing like handstand push-ups and like mm -hmm. backflips and shit like that. And um, so I was like, oh, dude, I want to, he was like freaking Goku from like uh, Dragon Ball Z. And I was like, dude, I want to be like Goku. <laughs> I want to be like super rip. So, you know, we used to, we used to like train like super hard doing like all these different just like movements and twists and stuff. And we would just train like anywhere from an hour to like four straight hours, just grueling, grueling shit. Mm -hmm. I mean... I don't think I've ever been in such good shape in my life. Hmm. Um, just grueling work. And then basically, we, once we were done, we'd hit up the Chinese buffet and, you know, just like eat for like two hours. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, literally my, um, so up until like my junior year in college, I was about 145, 145 pounds. And then within... At what height? My height, my current height. The height you are now. Yeah, I, was 40, I was 45. I was 40 pounds less than what I am now. <laughs> <laughs> just a freaking bean pole and um i bulked up in eight months i bulked up to about 175 180 wow um just got big um or just bigger i guess I'm, I'm not really that big of a dude ultimately i'm big for a climber but i'm not really that big of a guy um did calisthenics lead you into climbing mm -hmm. i know several people have kind of found it through that avenue mm -hmm. my uh the instructor who was Slib's father they ended up moving and I never really could find anyone who, or like, Oh, it was two different things. A, I was like underemployed or un, underemployed or unemployed at the time. So going to another school, was just, it just wasn't financially possible. Like a lot of these places are places are charging minimum like 150 bucks a month. And I just couldn't afford that. Right. Um, and B just, I wasn't able to find an instructor that really resonated with me well. And so I was doing a lot of just like self-training at home. Um, you know, I'd be training anywhere from 45 minutes to three hours just by myself. Yeah. And this is hard to do. Um, and so I went to the Stone Summit Atlanta off of 85 uh, with the girl I was dating at the time and, you know, learned how to top rope away and just climbed a little bit over there. We went like a couple more times after that. She moved to Germany to go to grad school. Mm. We broke up. <laughs> And then um, I started going to, I went to the gym a couple of more times, mostly to use like their weight room and like their pull-up bars and their yoga room to do calisthenics and stuff. And it just turns out that like, well, if I got a membership and I went three times a week, it was just worth my money. Sure. And then, you know, I like already knew how to top rope belay. So I'd use like the auto belay with the rental harness. And then like, oh man, these rental shoes suck. So I found like, I got a pair of like red chilies for like half off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and climbing like those red chilies for a bit and then eventually got my own harness so that was on sale um and got in yeah just started like climbing as a way to 
like I was like, well, I'm I'm spending this money for a climbing gym. I'm going to climb too, but I was also like spending a lot of time upstairs just doing calisthenics. What was this timeline like? You say like eventually I got my own harness, I got my own shoes. Um, let's what was see. the timeline like from coming to the gym? 2000. Let's see, I graduated college in 2011. Was like basically unemployed for two years. It was, it was impossible finding work back then. Um, so I think it was like 2013 was when I got my 2012 2013 was when I got my membership, and then like probably I did not like those rental shoes. So I got my I got my shoes like <laughs> I got my shoes like a month like Fuck into the it. Shoes. Oh, they're awful. Those Matt Rock rental shoes are awful. Um, I got my I got my shoes like about a month into um, getting my membership. Um, and then probably a harness like another month because I was using like you can use the rental harness on top rope it's not a big deal. Are you still using the same harness you got back then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't sport climb enough to be that concerned. I wondered. <laughs> so uh, I started climbing a bit more. I was mostly doing top rope then. Probably about six months into climbing, I met some people from the Atlanta Outdoor Club and went do, went on a couple climbing trips with them out in places like Lita and Chattanooga. We went to Sand Rock in Alabama, mm -hmm. like Curahy in North Georgia and stuff like that. Um, they kind of taught me how to like clean and that was like my first time like touching real rock and it's mostly like top rope. Um, but I was 24 at the time and most people who I was climbing with were like, you know, 45 or 50. And I was like, I got to get with some people who are like close to my age. Um, kind of like met a few people around my age, like my friend Julia and Clint and all of them, like Stephanie and Chris. Um, continued the top rope with them. I got my job at Apple Retail, which if anyone's ever worked retail, your hours are like all over the place. And so it became really hard to find like a partner, a belay partner. Yeah. So right. then that's when I really got into bouldering. Um, because I could just show up at the gym wherever I wanted to and just start yeah. bouldering in there. And then once I like, once I hit my first V5, it was like, it was like I hit my first V5 and the band that I was playing with, the band that I was playing in like broke up at the same time. Mm. And it's like a, it's like that super jilted feeling that you get when like, you know, your girlfriend breaks up with you or something. And you're just like, oh, I'm not going to date for a while. Like, fuck this. I'm just going to stay single. It was kind of like that with like the band stuff too. I was like, I need yeah. to take a break. This was super stressful. It was a really bad breakup. I just need to take a break from this. Like, also, like promoters were, like stealing money from you and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, it, I just got burned out, and so it was like V five happened, band broke up, I got my first crash pad, and it was just like that was it from there. Um, Over. Yeah. So it's that competitive spirit. I guess so. Now you need the V six. Uh, you needed it immediately. I yeah, gotta have it. It took a minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As it, took, it should. It took As a minute. It, should. it took a minute. V, when, wow. V5 and V7, I can remember being like two distinct like plateaus for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially, especially outdoor V7. Yeah. But then once I got the first outdoor V7, it seemed to just like happen one after another. Yeah. V8 also was weird. V8 was a, that, that, that took me a while, I feel like. Actually, no. I got my first V8 after about three years of climbing. It's this one called, um, it's called Boonie Project at Rocktown, and it's totally a V4. Mm -hmm. It's like a, it, the stand start is a V2 called, I think that's not, it's not called Bob Barker. I think it, not, no, it's not Price is Right either. 
forget <laughs> I can't remember I can't remember the stand start, but the stand start is a really cool V2 boulder problem. And then the V8 is the sit variation. It was a total joke. And I remember I topped it out and I was like, oh hell yeah, I got my first V8. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, that's when I'm, and then that's when I really kind of stopped caring about grades after a while. Um mm -hmm. but yeah, I remember yeah, V five and V seven, I remember those being really hard plateaus. Do you have any idea when you first identified as a climber? When did you say I am a climber? Hmm. I feel like that's hard. Cause sometimes I still don't feel like I'm much of a climber. Like I'm very much a weekend warrior. Um, I'm very much like a gym rat, but maybe like a couple of years ago, maybe. Do you think like recreational tennis players take vacations to play tennis in another place? <laughs> Just out of curiosity. Uh, that's a good question. That's a good point you make. That's a good point you make. <laughs> um, I, I do remember my first trip at, at the Red River Gorge. Um, I think I had been climbing for like two years at that point, two or two or three years. And I, I think that's when I remember like, I think that's when I remember that there was something kind of special about this sort of activity and community. Um, like you said, like recreational tennis players or recreational, whatever, they're not traveling around the world or the, or even the U S like doing what they doing, what they do. Um, and also just the scenery, I mean, the scenery and the activity and just like being outside. I do remember that being like a distinct moment where I was like, yeah, I feel like this is something I want to stick with for a while, but <clears throat> excuse me. But, um, I remember, I guess compared to most sports, right. You have, you have like the pros and you have like just there's, there's no one else right you know every like right. professional football players and basketball players yeah. and like no one gives a shit about the amateurs like no one really does but i feel like climbing is very unique in that sense where it's like you know there's a whole like culture to this that's so much more than just sport it's it's yeah. it's so much it's about community more than anything else and i guess like skiing and snowboarding and like kayaking and other outdoor recreational sports are very similar mm -hmm. um i guess this climbing was the one that i got into but yeah the red the red maybe that red trip is when i was like yeah i guess i guess i'm a climber now i guess this is what i'm doing yeah. um yeah cool well, i'm glad you are i'm glad you're doing it i'm glad you're here right now i'm glad to be here i think the climbing community needs people who think as deeply about it as you do when you When you fell in love with climbing, when you decided you were a climber, <clears throat> and when you were just telling me about it, it was, it started mostly about the activity, about the places, about the things you see, and less about the people. And for me, it was the opposite. For me, it was the people, partly because I needed people at that time in my life. You know, I, I needed a new community and to get away from the community I was in. But I'm curious with 
the the steam that this movement has picked up and the sort of the un and I'm using this term the way I see it, not necessarily how you see it, um, but the unveiling of a lot of racist attitudes in the climbing community that that frankly surprised me more than I should have been surprised. How are you feeling now about the community? Is there hope? Do you still love it? How are you feeling? Uh, it's a mixed bag, honestly. Um, uh, there's, a, I, I, there's, a, there's a lot of hope that I have like especially after seeing a lot of the positive feedback from like the like the podcast episode the four level climbing episode mm-hmm. that I have with Kathy which is a great episode thank and you. everyone should listen to thank you thank you if they haven't the uh, the episode with me Karima and Kai um seeing like the positive feedback and just <clears> how it resonates so well in the community um that that gives me hope seeing how a lot of people are at least they at least seem like they're willing to listen and they're, or they're wanting to like learn and kind of grow their, like grow, grow, the, like kind of grow in perspective a bit, or at least kind of like just listen. Yeah. Um, that's been, that's been pretty, like it's, it's given me some hope, but you know, and we've all done this. Like you dig into like an Instagram comment, comments thread, right. you know, Daniel Woods posts a, you know, a black power sign saying he's like for BLM. And then it's just like what seems like an endless number of comments of just like scrutiny yeah. and yeah, mockery. Same with and, Alex Magos. Yeah. And, yeah. And Williams. And, um, and to see that level of pushback and also this level of toxicity within that pushback, yeah. um, is it's pretty disheartening. Um, so I go I go back and forth between like feeling like both ways about it. And as a black man in this country, you have to have your guard up all the time. So like coming into this community, I I knew that this was a thing that had to exist, like these sort of mindsets. Sure. I knew that was a thing that had to be pre- like present. There's no way that a community this insular, this like white didn't have these issues there's just no way and so i already have my guard up in a lot of ways like i really 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 vet the people that i climb with like i say hey to you at the gym that don't mean we're friends right like if i say hey to the gym we're we're associates at best and like but i'm not i'm not climbing outside with you dude i don't know what you're about i don't know what you believe in i don't know you know your your morals or ethics so i've already had my guard up for a while and i already knew what i was getting myself into being in a community that was this this insular so um was fencing when you were involved a mostly white sport fencing is surprisingly diverse Hmm. okay um yeah it's actually pretty crazy uh especially in the international circuit like there's a lot of black fencers in europe wow cool uh, especially on the french team it's like pretty much the entire french fencing team is black it's like pretty crazy actually um and in the south a lot of Asians, decent amount of Latinx folks, some black folks, like sprinkle here and there. I mean, it's mostly largely white. Don't get me wrong, but I think because fencing in the South was very recreational and like 
you'd see like a wide range of people from various demographics and like, you know, whether it be racial, like different racial demographics or like different like income, like brackets and stuff like that. It was like a wide mix of people. Um, but yeah, it was much more diverse than, than climbing. Hmm. I would say uh, my middle school years in Texas, because I was one of my middle school years in Texas really taught me like what being othered really felt like. Uh, because my sixth grade year, I was one of black three black kids in my entire middle school. Mm. And in my seventh grade year, I was the only black kid in my middle school. No, 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 that's not true. I was the only black black boy in my middle school. I think there was two other black girls the year before me. Um, so I do like, I had already had experience with kind of being like that token black kid in the scene. <clears throat> so I kind of knew what to expect. Um, or maybe not to expect, but I kind of knew what it already felt like. And I wasn't afraid to kind of like put myself in various scenes or atmospheres or ecosystems, whatever you want to call them. Like I wasn't afraid to put myself in these certain like environments that were very insular because I already kind of knew what that had kind of felt like. Right. And in a sense, I, I'm appreciative uh, I'm appreciative of it because I knew what to look for. Um in people, I guess, to like protect myself, I guess. And like, right. You know, know who's safe. Yeah. Yeah. So. And you're, you're learning to climb, starting to climb in Atlanta, which is a pretty diverse metropolitan area. And climbing was still extremely white. Oh yeah. We have a lot of, a lot of Asians at our gym. Um, mostly because that section of Atlanta, like where that gym was at Norcross, it's like a very large Vietnamese population. And then just north, um, just northeast in Duluth, a very large Korean population. So a lot of Viet lot of, like a lot of Vietnamese, a lot of Korean climbers, some Latinx folks here and there. I was the only black dude for like three or four years. Every now and again, someone else would like show up, but you know, I think they were just there to just like session for a couple of days, but yeah, I was the only black dude in the gym. Mm. It was me and Emily Taylor, the the coach. Right. And that was pretty much it. Um, and which is pretty crazy because it's like Atlanta, Georgia, like right. the home of contemporary like rap music now. Like you can't hear a rap song. Hell, you can't even hear a country a country song on the yeah. radio yeah. without hearing like an eighty <laughs> a, a freaking eight oh eight beat in the background and right. like some sort of Atlanta influence, right? So it's like the blackest city in the United States, yet it's just me and this gigantic gym. Um, so yeah, it's pretty. It says it says a lot, I think. Um, and I'm not I'm not asking you at all to like give us the whole reason. Um, but why do you think that is? Why do you think even in a city like Atlanta? it was still such a white sport. I think Well, it's 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 always like there's multiple layers to this. <sighs> I think in, with a lot of outdoor recreational activities, you are participating 
in some of the most rural backwoods areas in the United States. Um, where typically people are a bit more conservative leaning mm-hmm. um, and they might have certain attitudes <clears throat> about race relations and things like that. And this isn't to say if you're conservative, you're a racist or anything like that, but contemporary conservative conservatism is, is kind of founded on, you know, taking the old Dixiecrat, <laughs> Dixiecrat, you know, Democrats over to the Republican party, which Dixiecrats were racist Democrats. You yeah. know, they wanted to sustain white supremacy as long and as best as they could. Um, so a lot of like the language, a lot of coded like dog whistle language that they use to recruit those people over, I think definitely it, it persists today. That sure. sort of like attitude, that perspective and, <clears throat> um, and that philosophy exists today in the modern conservative movement. So and I think has also bled into the children of that movement, oh, yeah. even if they have other ideas, if they believe other things, they, they're still steeped in that tradition. Oh yeah, for sure. It's whether hard to kind of like unlearn what your parents whether taught we you, right? like it or not. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I agree with that. Um, you're you're in some of the you know most kind of ultra conservative rural areas in the United States, and black people are well aware of that. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and so I think that that in, in and of itself is like a huge deterrent as to why people like why black people aren't really getting out there and doing things like kayaking or climbing or like even camping or like yeah. hiking and stuff like that. Cause it's like, yeah. shit, I go to North Georgia to go to rock town and it's like, there's stars and bars everywhere. Yeah. And that's a, you know, the Confederate flag is a, that is a, that is a huge indicator that like, mm-hmm. chances are I don't really belong at this person's house or like, I definitely can't be knocking on your door. Heaven right. forbid I'm, I'm going to Lafayette, Georgia, where Rocktown is at, and I get a breakdown. Car breaks down, yeah. sure. Like, thank mm-hmm. God I got AAA. I'm just going to sit in my car because I can't go knock on someone's door. And who knows with that AAA driver. Right. <laughs> you know? But, you know, like, I can't go knock on someone's door in, in Lafayette, Georgia, or Steele, Alabama, or, you know, even part to chat. Um, because, I mean, hell, there have been countless stories of black people who have been trained on the side of the road trying to knock on someone's door right and either they get shot by the, by the homeowner or by the police mm-hmm. um and just as a just as a challenge to the people listening you know imagine how many times you or or friends that you know have broken down in these areas in either in the Southeast, in the New River Gorge, in, you know, all of these backwoods, rural areas, every single one of us knows someone who's broken down there. And we've had to go collect them, save them, help them. It's a different story if you break down there. Yeah, it's, it's a bit different. Being in this vessel comes with a lot of danger. 
but it's not it's mostly because of how people perceive me yeah um and i think the the hard thing to and i think we're kind of we're segueing a bit i guess but the hard thing to really come to terms with and i think a lot of these like high profile deaths of predominantly black men over the past six years it's like a constant reminder of this it's like regardless of how hard your parents worked how hard you've worked to kind of like better yourself better your life you can still become a victim based on someone's perception of you and i i think uh and uh the perfect example of this is in the book um, between the world between the world of me. Yeah, uh, Tanahasi Coates. Tanahasi. He starts talking about a classmate of his, and I think Prince Jones. I think it was his name. Mother was like PhD professor. He I think had his master's or something like that. Broke down on the side of the road, and this is like someone. It's like his mother. You know bought him you know his mother did all these things for him to try to better his life and try to like you know try to do try to do good for her child and then he did a lot of things to better his life like he you know no matter like your degrees or your income or the car you drive like being in this vessel is inherently dangerous and so he was shot and killed by the police for just no for i think he broke down the side of the road shot and killed by the police for someone thinking that they were breaking into their house when he was just trying to get i don't know like a jump or a jack or something like that and so it's it's just rough because it's like <clears throat> you you sit here and you see what happens to michael brown or eric gardner or tamir rice countless we've got yeah. a bunch of examples and you see what happens to these folks and you're like oh that can't be me i have my master's degree at emory university or that right. can't be me i drive a mercedes or that can't be me i'm making a quarter million dollars a year. Um, and you kind of see like more and more of these examples of people who are quote unquote upstanding citizens who get a fucking knee to their neck or, you know, who are just yeah. kind of shot by the police because of this perception of them that, you know, that isn't, that isn't always accurate. Um, is rarely accurate. Is rarely accurate. I have to live the experiences and the stereotypes of millions of other black people. Mm. I yeah. have to, I have to inherit that. Um, and that could lead to physical violence against me. Yeah. All that to say that threat is like exponentially higher when you're in these super conservative, like insular, like neighborhoods sure. and, areas and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's like a long way of just saying like operating this body is is dangerous. Um, and so and and black people, especially black men, are well aware of that. Jameson um, knew it was dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I still beat him. <laughs> what's, what's funny about this, I still I beat him and um, I don't think he ever went to nationals. I ended up going to nationals. I ended up joining the Dumb Fencing Club. You know, I was Take that, like James. three or four times a week and things like that. He's still good. <laughs> he was still good. But he he ended up going on doing something else. I forgot what. But um, 
so we're yeah. we're sitting here at my house in Wyoming. You you willingly came to Wyoming, <laughs> went to tent sleep. Yeah. You didn't even tell your mom you were coming to Wyoming. My mom would have thought it was fucking crazy. Yeah. Why why continue coming to areas that are that you know are, you know, make it dangerous for you to to just be you in? Hmm. I mean, I'm And I'm saying this not out of a just because I know there are people listening who will bitch about whatever. Yeah. This is not a you shouldn't be here exclamation. This is, you know, there's obviously some major love dedication to this sport lifestyle that, that allows you to overlook that. Maybe not overlook, that's the wrong word. Um, to weigh the risk and reward between the danger, potential danger, and going climbing and you choose going climbing. I'm curious why. Um, I love the travel. I think it's just this yearn. It's just like this, this desire to kind of just see the world around me. Um, and I don't know, I'm not going to really let, I'm not really going to let that stop me from mm. doing what I want to do. Um, yeah, I think that's really it. I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I'm, what I want to do. And yeah, you know, if that means like not necessarily going <clears throat> through downtown 10 sleep all that often, like that's, that's all right. There's not that much there anyway, but um is yeah. there a downtown tin sleep? Is I that mean, a thing? There's a downtown, like where Dirty <laughs> Sally's is and all that. That's that's kind of downtown. They had a they had a country they had a country music concert going on over there, and shit. I quickly became the show when I walked through there. Yeah. Uh, I oh bet. my goodness! It's kind of um, who's the, you probably know this, Chris? Who's the comedian who was like, being black is dangerous, but it sure is fun as hell. Oh boy, I don't know. Uh, it might have been Chris Rock. I can't remember. That one's always resonated with me. I just played some Bernie Mac for her last night. And <laughs> all right. R.I.P. Bernie Mac. She was losing her damn mind. R.I.P. Bernie Mac. His set in The Kings of Comedy. That's what we were watching. Oh, my God. His set was too funny. <laughs> to get the milk and cookies. Yeah. Um, that's the part we watched. Oh, my God. <laughs> too funny. Too funny. Uh, um, Do you feel that, that quote that you quoted from the Oh, hell yeah. Especially when you're out in these areas like this, because, you know, as, as much as, um, you know, I'm walking past like the sheriffs and stuff like that. And like, you know, I might get some looks from them and I realize that that's a situation that be kind, it could be kind of weird, especially when they see me get in the car, yeah. you know, and who knows what they're thinking. Yeah. Um, you know, 10 minutes later when I look at the general, like the genuine befuddlement on some of these people's faces as I'm walking through downtown, yeah, like, six foot one black dude with locks and gauges in his ears and wearing like a freaking tie dye shirt and stuff like that. And I'm yeah. just walking through here just like casually. Yeah. They looked so confused. Yeah. And it, and it wasn't, I, I didn't get any like <clears throat> threatening looks. It wasn't like that time I was telling you about Chicago. Like it wasn't like lasers at me and like North, like North Chicago. Right. Like, what the fuck are you doing here? You know, it was more of just like, you're just Whoa. making them a little but, uncomfortable. Oh yeah. And, and, or they're just confused. They're just yeah. confused. Yeah. And that's yeah. the fun part. 
That's the fun part. It's funny mm -hmm. as hell sometimes. They're like, uh, <clears throat> other examples is like, you know, you know, you said I don't sound like a Southerner and a lot of people say I talk white. And so I'll do like a phone interview and this is especially when after, after college and I was applying to, you know, a hundred different places a month and, you know, I get a phone interview yeah. every now and again, I'd get an interview to step inside the door. Yeah. So I'm talking on the phone. They're super, 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 super excited, you know, oh, to have me yeah. come in and things like that. And, you know, I walk into that room <clears> and the person I was talking on the phone with, you're like, oh, you're Brandon. And they, you know, their, their face, their face quickly come, you know, their face quickly changes from excitement to disappointment. Wow. And uh see, I think you look like a young Buster Rhymes. So <laughs> so I'm gonna hire you immediately based entirely on that. <laughs> um so you know, part of that is like disheartening, but also part of it's kind of funny too, yeah. right? Um yeah. dealing with that. Or like I drive a white Subaru Forester, a 2018 white Subaru Forester, right? right. Like you know, my <clears throat> my friends like joke like I drive like a lesbian mom car. And um, you know, I get out of that car, although my tent is like illegally dark. That should be the indicator that I'm just black dude in the car. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I step out of the car and like, you know, I get people look at me like confused or like, oh shit, I wasn't expecting that at all. You know, they're expecting some like, you know, what middle-aged white woman to walk out of the car or something yeah. like that. You know, yeah. it's just stuff like that. That's like, that's the fun part. Right. Yeah. Um, I think on the, like the real human level, a lot of us, do respond to danger and discomfort and anxiety with humor. Oh yeah. Finding the humor in the situation. You know, I think that's a that's a mechanism a lot of us use. And and the fact that there's a comedian who can do a sketch about this and and it be an understood part of the black experience just just points out how you know how much black people have to go through just to live their daily lives you have to you have to laugh to not cry i guess yeah in a sense right i i forget who said that i i'm bad at like quoting people but you know it's just you kind of have to like make light make light of a shitty situation yeah. From time to time. And, you know, I, and not to say that my situation, quote unquote, my life was like shitty. Like I grew up privileged as fuck. Like mm -hmm. steady income family, um, dual income family. My father passed away when I was young, but my mom busted her ass to make sure that we got what we wanted whenever we wanted. We're always middle income bracket. Never had to worry about bills or anything like that. Like I have like an advanced degree. I work a good job now. So like I'm like my, I have it. I, I'm I'm well off, you know. I got like, I got this one thing here going on, this, this skin tone <laughs> going on, but you know, just still, you know, there's there's some shit I got to deal with, and yeah. there's some shit I have to kind of experience from time to time, and uh, kind of having this shared traumatic, tra this shared traumatic experience has been. <clears throat> um, has been a lot to process this year, especially. I don't sure. really know what it is about this year that really changed everything. Mm. Um, I don't think any of us know what about this year changed everything. I think but, it's just a, a multitude of things. But you know, I've heard a lot of people recently talk about like cancel 2020, fuck 2020, whatever. And I'm, 
more and more I'm feeling like maybe this is the year we needed. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there's some important things happening right now, yeah. and let's let's keep that ball rolling. I agree. I agree. There's um I've I've never experienced so many people and I think I said this earlier, so many people who are just willing to just listen. Yeah. Um, that's never been, that's never really been a thing that's happened. Like anytime that I've really brought up anything like, you know, race relations or anything related, there's usually like a lot of pushback that's involved, especially mm-hmm. in a city like Atlanta. Cause you have a lot of people try to flip it. Well, it's like, well, Atlanta's predominantly black. Well, technically I'm a minority here. And it's just like, okay, my guy, like who's in the fucking office right now? Come on. Yeah. Um, I, I'm glad that people are, from your perspective, listening. I feel like sometimes I've created this audience because of my like sort of in your face attitude. Like I'm going to point out your, the excuses you're making Mm -hmm. and that I've curated my audience to people who are willing to accept that. So people are less willing to like tell me that they're not willing to listen. So I'm glad from your perspective that you're seeing people listening. Or at least within my own little bubble. Yeah. That's kind of the dangers of social media, right? Everything is very much like a vacuum in some ways. Sure. Um, I think we get enough little bubbles listening though. Yeah. And and then we've got a, a much bigger part of the community. Yeah. I'm really glad to see a lot more uh, high-profile athletes saying. Kind of saying saying something at least. Yep, same. Um, even if it's not much, they're saying something. Um, and more companies are starting to be a bit more outspoken. Um, it's it's given me hope, but yeah, you just have to kind of keep the foot on the gas at this point, which is it's hard. Yeah, it's hard. And you said you said you're not going to let it stop you, and I'm extremely glad for that. I'm happy that's your answer. I feel like it's partly my duty at this point as somebody who who has a platform, who people listen to, whether they pay attention to or not, I can't say, but I know they're at least downloading and listening to. It's part of my duty to let those people know and help direct those people into how can we make this a community that's more more inclusive, more accepting, more welcoming, safer. Willing to listen and learn. Yeah, willing to listen and learn. And and I asked this of Genevieve Walker when I met her in Ten Sleep and had a great conversation with her. And I'm going to ask you to something that we discussed was love language and how it's different for everybody. And if we are talking to you in a love language, what does that look like? What can this community do? What can we, how can we make it look so that it's better for you, more welcoming for you, not as unsafe is there anything tangible you can think of that can change? 
Hmm. I think part of the... I don't want to say part of the issue because like the demographics of a town is what it is. But I think, I think, and like I said this earlier, I think um, the big hurdle is the surrounding communities of these areas that where we recreate. Um, <clears throat> I think if black and brown people were to feel safer in those surrounding communities, then they they would come. Um, so as much as I want to say, you know, climbing needs to do this and climbing needs to do that, and you know, there are definitely things that the community needs to needs to address and and take care of. I, I think it's going to require more of a national shift or a national change in people's attitudes when it comes to race relations and how they feel about black and brown people and things like that. I think it's got to be, I think it's got to just be a much bigger thing than that. Um, I'll say this based on what you're saying that especially in a lot of these small towns, you know, Lander, Tinsley, yeah. um, a lot of the small towns where there's great climbing, Fayetteville, Slade, Kentucky, the climbing community is a big part of the the financial makeup of those communities. Right. And we can absolutely leverage that to to make that sort of a difference. Right. You know, to normalize this sort of a conversation, right. to normalize Black Lives Matter, to push back against Confederate flags. We have that power. Right. Maybe maybe climbers didn't have that power in the '90s, but sure now they now. absolutely yeah. do. And I was actually going to say, I think one way I think you could do that is just like normalizing more black and brown faces in those areas, right? So if more black and brown people are getting interested in, in not just like climbing in the gym, but also like getting out and traveling while doing so, right? You know. All of a sudden, it's not that weird to see a black dude like walking across the street to get some chicken wings at Sleepy Coyote at 9 p.m. because you know, he's fucking hungry. You know, all of a sudden, it's not that weird because it's just like, all right, cool. Like, there's you know hundreds of black people that do that and travel intensely to go climb. Yeah. Um, but you know, for that to happen, that that introduction has to be made, and yep. you know, the community has to be a community that is welcoming enough to have people feel comfortable. And part of that also is just like we got to start opening up gyms in the hood or like opening up gyms in like more diverse neighborhoods. Like uh, first ascent Humboldt is in, you know, it's kind of next to like one of the roughest parts of Chicago. And I've never seen so many black and brown people in one climbing gym in my mm. life. You know, there's like this, like there's an Indian dude in here. It's like, it's me and Justin are climbing together. Like some Asian folks over here, you know, it, it was amazing. I was like, Oh, this is crazy. This is what a lot of gyms should be looking like in most Metro areas. Um, so I, you know, I would say, you know, more, more community outreach programs, trying to get, you know, more black youth or black and brown youth within climbing, you know, stop opening up gyms near a bunch of Whole Foods, yeah. you know, yeah. right. start opening up gyms in like just different neighborhoods and things like that. That's why I'm excited about this new gym called the uh, Overlook in, in the West in Atlanta, which is just a relatively traditionally black neighborhood. Um, they're opening up over there, hopefully soon. Um, 
COVID's kind of slowed them down a lot. But yeah. I think that's going to help kind of bridge bridge some gaps because all of a sudden the gym's just down the street from you. Yeah. You don't have to take a bus or ride, you know, <clears throat> or, you know, drive your car halfway across town to a side of town that you don't even like or don't even go to very often. Like, oh, cool. It's just like I can practically walk there now. Um, I think just, yeah, just trying to bridge that gap as best as possible. Community outreach. Open up, opening up some businesses like you know closer to where these people live. I think is definitely one way you can do it, and hopefully you know you get some people who are passionate. Hopefully you get some people who are really wanting to be a part of the community and want to label themselves as climbers because they're obsessed with it and they got obsessed with it like I did, and then you know from there all of a sudden they're they're in freaking Lander, Wyoming, talking to Chris. <laughs> um, yeah. And then at that point, you know, <clears throat> some people's, like, you might not change people's minds, but I you guess. Can, you can at least take the the gut reaction of, oh, there's a six foot plus black guy running across the street at 9 p.m. That must mean something bad. Right you can remove that gut reaction right. by normalizing it a little. Especially in a town of 260 people, right. town, like 10 sleep, who I can't even imagine the last time that town has had a black person come through. Maybe uh, maybe like a biker or something like that. Genevieve, a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah, true. True <laughs> that. Yeah, that's very true. <laughs> it's very true. And I'm sure they get a lot of, uh, a lot of bikers probably going through there or something. Mm-hmm. Like the reaction, like I said, the reaction wasn't, it wasn't a strong negative reaction, but the general befuddlement definitely gave me gave me the perception that oh they're they're not used to yeah. seeing people like me at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the climbing community in general needs to realize their power, mm-hmm. and you know, in these small communities, there's a lot of a lot of financial power in these festivals that we bring. You know, to Lander, to Ten Sleep, to Rifle. You know, to the red, to the new, all these places. And if these towns realize the the power of the black dollar or the brown dollar, whatever you want to call it, I mean, that's just more money in their pockets. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Money's money is a color, or money is green. It's not black or white or anything like that. You know? Yeah. Which you know, unfortunately, you know, that if unfortunately you know. Money, it takes money to kind of like bridge that gap but if that's the if that's the way that you have to do it then you know so be it i suppose um anything that ju- that can just get people out there and just kind of like pursuing what they want to pursue um because everyone needs to see shit like this everyone everyone needs to see like you know this canyon out like bighorn canyon and stuff like that everyone needs to see shit like that it's gorgeous yeah, it's gorgeous. yeah. absolutely beautiful um everyone deserves to if they want to everyone deserves to feel comfortable going out in that space and just viewing at it or climbing there or hiking there or swimming there. Everyone deserves that. Yeah. But it's even, it should be beyond the money. You know, climbers are <clears throat> business owners. We work in schools. We, we work in the communities. Yeah. And if we are <clears throat> accepting and caring and loving and inclusive yep. and we are, you know, making sure that our communities know that we are that way and we expect that from others in our communities, then when 
someone of color shows up to get a job at the cowfish, they're going to get hired. And right. And people that they're serving or cooking for are going to, oh, this is normal. And, you know, it's beyond just, it should be beyond just the dollar. Right. 100%. Yeah, and I think we have that influence, and we just have to exercise it. Yeah. We have to realize our power a lot more than we do. I, I do think the community is, is still, like, super obsessed with keeping things kind of, quote-unquote, underground, which is, like, yep. that's, well, we're, we're, we're way, way past We're way that. beyond that. <laughs> like, give up way, that dream. Give way up that past dream. it. I think we still want to, like, like, still be, like, rebellious and, and kind of punk rock, I guess. Like, but... Well, our friend Forrest just walked in. What's up, so, what's up, dude? What's up? How y'all doing? give me a hug, man. Yeah. I smell bad. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how you I know. Well, we're taking a. We're we're wrapping it up. We're gonna eat popsicles and we're gonna hang out with Forrest. Brandon, I appreciate you sitting down having this conversation. I'm glad that you didn't turn out to be the. I can't cry. I'm a tough guy that your dad and the coaches <laughs> wanted you to be. I cried during a lot of movies. Me too. Yeah. I cried during <laughs> a lot of movies. I just learned yesterday that it is really horrible to cry in a mask. Oh, at a, man. At Jeez. a memorial that I was at. Oh, so I'm sorry about that. Man. It's terrible. But I think I, think I appreciate you. I can I ask you a question? Yeah. What was the last movie you cried to? Last movie I cried to? Yeah. I cried too many. I cried sports movies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Every sports movie. I don't remember which the last one was. Eight seconds. I cry every time I watch eight seconds. Eight seconds. You should watch it. You'll cry. A rodeo movie. <laughs> I told y'all a rodeo movie. It's a. I told y'all I'm like a redneck deep down about the human cool. condition. Okay. All right. I think I think the last movie I cried to was uh, I was on the flight to Paris and I watched Logan. And mm. any any like any father child situation. Oh, I do too. Oh yeah, I yeah. Can't do so it. Logan and I'm sorry, but I try to hide it. She always just looks over yeah, at me like, oh. like I know oh, you're yeah. crying right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> any any father child situation because of my experience. It yeah. yeah. So Logan get Logan gets impaled by that branch and he's dying, mm -hmm. and his daughter is basically watching her dad die, and I was just like, oh fuck, like no, 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 no. Yeah, it's like man. this is trauma. No, and I'm on this plane just like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, dude. I was like, no, I'm fine. It's just this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks yeah, for having me sober. Thanks for the tacos. I'm sure all of you have heard me say this hundreds of times at this point, but I fucking love sitting across from someone getting to see their emotions on their face getting to have these in-depth conversations to get to know to get to know someone deeper than just on the surface so often at the crag we just get to know people on the surface we we have this small talk this little chatter um these conversations go so much deeper than that and and I appreciate the people who sit across from me and let me dig into their lives the way that they do I especially appreciate when they have a different perspective than I do and they can teach me about their perspective which ultimately makes me a better 
podcast host, a better person, a better partner, a better coach. Um, So Brandon, thank you so much for sitting down with me. I'm really looking forward to the next time we get to climb together, hopefully on some southern boulders. I'll see you out there. If not, I'll see you here. You all can learn more about Brandon on his Instagram at Mr. Big Strings. There's also a link for that right there in your show notes. Don't forget about the trivia game. The link is in your show notes. We'll be supporting We Climb out of Chattanooga. Really looking forward to seeing what this group does in the future and being a small part of helping it grow. You know where to find us, powercompanyclimbing.com. This is going to be a big winner for us. Check us out on there. Keep your eyes peeled on that website, on the Instagrams, on the Facebooks, at Power Company Climbing. And keep your eyes peeled on the Twitter. You won't see us there because we don't tweet. We scream like eagles. say this before you ask your question um pretty much the same same thing we did with genevieve no i hate asking but you love it actually (laughs) so yeah so ask your question it's so fun to watch you climb because you're like you're an athlete you're graceful you're dynamic so but you talked about and i don't remember Called it the fencing you used to do. But um, what have you done? What kind of athlete have you been? How do you, how do you control your body uh, like that? How do you control your body like that? Let's like. It's weird, like, cause I, when I was younger, I was like a really, I was a really scrawny kid, like really scrawny. But I used to ride my bike all the time. That was pretty much my only.